Welcome to Good Christophian Talks. I'm Levi. And I'm Chris. And I'm Brian. Thank you for joining us this week. On this podcast, we select one talk a week to help us get the Bible in our daily newsfeed. We post a new episode at the start of each week with a short intro beforehand to kind of set the stage for the talk you're about to listen to. And now, let's talk more about this week's talk. This week's talk is an exhortation by Brother Charles Crawford that he gave at the Halifax Ecclesia in the UK um, last October. Um, He doesn't really have a formal title, uh, but he says right at the beginning um, that the main theme is the fullness of joy. And Charles does a really great job um, kind of studying joy and teasing out the difference between joy and happiness and how joy should be a permanent attribute, a permanent thing um, that we enjoy while happiness and sadness um, by nature uh, kind of come and go. Uh, but we have a hope um, and a promise uh, that should install a permanent joy in us. Um, I thought his delivery in this exhortation is excellent, um, very succinct, um, doesn't feel like an exhortation with a wasted word in it. And I really appreciated uh, the brother's thoughtfulness and work uh, in this talk, and I'm excited to share it. Uh, this was a suggestion, uh, so thank you to the uh, to the person who sent that in, and thank you to all of you who send in suggestions. It is such a huge help for us. Please uh, keep that coming. Um, I also, before we go, wanted to just do a quick shout out for my friend, Brother Sam Taylor's podcast, uh, Pause to Consider. Sam uh, took a break, but is back, and his most recent episode um, is absolutely excellent. So wherever you, you listen to podcasts, look for Pause to Consider. That's another really great Christophian podcast. Um, but uh, t- So here we go with Brother Charles Crawford, The Fullness of Joy. Good morning, everyone. It's uh, great to be with you this afternoon. Um, and it's also particularly nice, I feel, because of the message that we have to share this morning from Philippians. Because the overall summary of our exhortation this morning is to be full of joy. Paul was obsessed with joy. He was absolutely captivated by it, so that he crowbarred it at every opportunity into this letter, as we'll, we'll see. But first of all, a period of self-reflection. Because I feel that for significant parts of our lives, we spend our time searching for the hits of happiness that come from endorphins and dopamine, little tiny chemicals in our brains that say you're happy. Now, these can come from all sorts of situations. You can get these chemicals from exercise, nice, nice and healthy. You can also get these chemicals from unhealthy things, for example, gambling. Both of these trigger the release of the chemicals that make us feel that spike in our mood, which say you're happy. Okay. Social media, very similar. If you get lots of likes to your post, hit of endorphins, you feel happy. And so these things can be addictive. But there are problems with chasing these hits. Not least is because they are superficial. They are dependent on circumstances and contingent. You might be used to getting your hits of, of chemicals from exercise, then you pick up the injury, you no longer can do the exercise, you no longer no longer get the happiness, you're sad. The horses will always lose more than they win. 
So you will always find that these bubbles of happiness pop and end in disappointment. And chasing these hits can lead to unhealthy behaviours. So we get hits of happiness from food, and the fattier and the sugary, more sugary, the greater the hit. But if you keep chasing those hits, it leads to being unhealthy and our well-being is wrecked. So it's important to recognise in ourselves that we all, to a certain degree, chase after this happiness. But in contrast, the joy that Paul is effervescent about does not depend on circumstances. And you can't have an unhealthy level of the joy that grips Paul so much. In the opening of chapter 3, which we read together, we read how Paul is almost <laughs> apologetic about bringing this up so much. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It's a safeguard to you. So he knows he's going on about it a lot, but he doesn't apologize and uses an interesting phrase, which is to say, this is for your safekeeping. And this is the power of joy. It keeps us safe. The opposite is true, that if we lose the joy, then we're at risk. We're at risk from dangerous things. That's how important it is to be full of joy. Let me give you an analogy just to try and an image to help picture where the two different sources of happiness and joy. Picture yourself uh, on, a, on a beach somewhere and the tide is rolling in. There's a bit of wind, so there's a lot of waves and they come crashing in, getting closer and closer and closer to you on the beach. So you can feel the direction of the ocean is coming towards you. What you're unaware of is that there's another current in the ocean, a deeper current, which is actually going in the exact opposite direction to the one that you're aware of. That's the undercurrent, the undertow, which goes away from the shore, runs opposite, counter to the main flow. Big rivers have them too, but the point is we're only aware of what's going on the surface. We're only aware of the surface currents. We're not aware of what's going on uh, deep down. So the analogy I want to give you is that joy comes from a different current to happiness and sadness. Happiness and sadness are affected by the surface conditions, whether they be choppy waves or a beautiful still mill pond with a nice gentle breeze. Our mood is affected by the tossing and turning of those surface currents. Whether our team wins or loses, our mood is affected by these superficial things. But joy comes from the deeper current a stream of living water that's headed in a different direction and is much deeper to that which is going on around us. So in some ways, a test of our spiritual well-being is how aware are we of the deeper currents that bring joy and conversely, how much we are affected by the surface and tossing and turning of waves. In his book, Surprised by Joy, which is kind of a memoir of his journey from atheism to Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes that, Joy must be sharply distinguished from happiness or pleasure. I doubt that whether anyone who has tasted joy will exchange it for all the pleasure in the world. So everything, all the happiness, all the pleasures he experiences in his younger life as an atheist were not in any way comparable to the deep joy he got from his Christian faith. 
So what is it that Paul is so joyful about? Um, I've been through it all, and I think there are three categories of where joy comes from for Paul. The first is from his brothers and sisters. He describes them as his joy and his crown. The second is from his faith, the deep love he has, the gospel which is spreading um, from place to place. And the third, and this shows you how deep we're talking, is from service, even service that brings us to suffering. So the first joy is the joy of brothers and sisters. If you look at the opening of chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. His joy comes from his brothers and sisters. There's no doubt that the pandemic we've all been through has emphasised isolation. It's made introverts out of extroverts. It's ramped up anxiety about being in social situations. In contrast to previous national crises which have brought people together, think for example about the blitz spirit if you like, this crisis has blown us apart. It's had catastrophic consequences, but we are where we are. Actually, it's quite a striking parallel when you think about it to Paul himself, because this letter was written from the ultimate social isolation. If you go to chapter one, <coughs> and verse seven, Paul writes, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, for whether I am in chains, or defending the one confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. And then if you drop down to verse 13, as a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. So Paul was locked up, the ultimate social isolation but he was still gaining joy from knowing the fellowship uh, he has with his brothers and sisters. But he longed to be with them in person. Zoom has been fantastic. I don't know how we would have survived without it, but it's not the same as face-to-face -face fellowship. It doesn't have the same power. And we should always remember that. You know, when I was um, learning to be a dentist, um, we did. We had a clinic where we made dentures for all the elderly of, of Manchester. And so you'd make this set of false teeth, you'd give them to the, to the patient, and off they'd go. A week later, they'd be back. Can you just adjust that? Off you go. A week later, they'd be back. Can you just adjust this? Off you go, off you go. This would go on five, six, seven times. But then the formidable Dr. Jill Hoyt-Reddy <coughs> would intervene, our tutor. And she would sit down and she would take the teeth and banging on the table with the teeth as she was talking, she would go, Mrs. Jones, these teeth and these dentures are not a replacement for teeth. They're a replacement for no teeth. <laughs> go on. Trying to realign the patient's expectations. The dentures were not a replacement for teeth, but they were a substitute. And in the same way, Zoom is not a replacement for fellowship. It's a replacement for no fellowship. And we've so, so benefited from it for all these years, 
but we have to make sure we don't forget Paul's longing, if you like, to be with his brothers and sisters face to face. Being actually physically present makes it easier to properly support each other. To have a positive influence on each other, to give advice, to share a laugh. If you scan around all the conversations that happen when we finish this service into lunch, there'll be all sorts of things discussed, spiritual matters, practical matters, a joke, all of this that happens through face-to-face and is so important. The writer to the Hebrews emphasizes this. If you want to have a quick look at chapter 10, verse 24. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as we see the day approaching. By being together, we encourage each other to love and good deeds. We're all imitators of other people to a certain degree. And if you see someone else showing love and compassion, that inspires you to do the same. But if you don't see it, you're less likely to do it. So being together is so important. The second area where Paul gained his joy from was from the gospel itself. In a letter, he describes the believers as having the same love and that this message was spreading. Now, it seems obvious to say it, stating the absolute obvious, but the gospel is supposed to be good news. Encountering the gospel is supposed to feel like a blessing, like a lifting of burdens, a lightness that can, can't come from anywhere else, something which cannot be replaced by any other source, a relief that only comes from meeting the grace of God. And so if it ever doesn't feel like that, it's probably our fault. There's a picture, there's a lovely picture uh, that Charles Dickens provides in Great Expectations. He has this, this minor character called Mrs. Joe. And just a few short lines, it absolutely captures what I'm getting at. Mrs. Joe was a very clean housekeeper. But she had the exquisite art of making her cleanliness more uncomfortable and unacceptable than the dirt itself. Cleanliness is next to godliness, and some people do the same by their religion. This is the opposite of the joy of the gospel. And often it comes through legalistic approaches uh, to faith. It's this that Jesus warns about in his ministry. For example, in, in the woes against the Pharisees in Luke chapter 11, he talks about how they put heavy legalistic burdens creating misery for ordinary people. <coughs> and the great irony is that the, these teachers who put these burdens on other people can't actually carry them themselves. So we have to, to always maintain that the gospel is good news. I've been reading a bit about the human brain and how it works and the difference between left side and right side. It's quite fascinating, really. Experiments show that the left side of the brain really likes rules and the right side of the brain is really good at putting things together. So there's these strange experiments. I don't know how they do, but they can activate and inactivate different parts of your brain. So if you ask someone to draw a flower and you inactivate the right side of the brain, so they're just using the left side of the brain, they would draw, if you like, a flower by rules, circle, petals round it, okay? 
So obviously, if you talk, if you said to a computer, "What does a flower look like?" it would say, "Yes, yeah, circle flower, uh, petals around it." If you do the opposite, if you inactivate the left side and just allow the right side to work, then you'll draw a flower with uh, a stalk and leaves coming off it. Even though leaves technically aren't the flower, they're the big picture. And so there's advantages to both ways of working, but a healthy mind puts them both together, puts the rules in the proper context. Maturing faith is one that never loses sight of what we're maturing in is love. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may, may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. So our maturation is to grow in love, being able to discern how to act in love in our world and in our circumstances. So the third and final source of Paul's joy demonstrates why this current we're talking about is such a deep current. It's not superficial, it's not frivolous. Paul's joy comes from service, even if that means suffering. <laughs> Chapter 2, verse 17, he says, Even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, and so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul's saying, even though it looks like I'm, I'm finished, I'm on the way out, ebbing away if you like, you should be joyful with me and I with you. It would not have come as a surprise to the believers in Philippi that this is what Paul would do. Because when the church in Philippi was set up in Acts chapter 16, if you want to go there, they saw this attitude in action. Acts chapter 16, they were in, in the area of Philippi and they were, they were doing their thing and they came across a very difficult situation. They came across the abuse of a vulnerable young girl. In verse 16 of Acts 16, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future and she earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. So here we go someone being in slavery and being abused um, for, for cold, hard cash. The situation escalates because Paul heals her of her mental illness, and so the owners of this young girl lose their cash cow. Verse 19, it says, When the, the owners of the slave girl realised that, that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful for Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. So the people of Philippi, the church of Philippi, had first-hand witness 
of what it is to suffer for doing the right thing. To do the right thing and to be beaten and flogged. To do the right thing, to act with integrity and to be thrown in jail. They had first-hand experience of that. They also would have heard how Paul responded to that. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And you can imagine that was spread like wildfire. This deep joy, this deep joy that comes from knowing that you've done the right thing. You've been working and acting in a different current to the rest of the world, acting in integrity. It's interesting to um, look at different religions and get different uh, insights, if you like, as to, as to which I think I, I find that illuminating, illuminating for myself. So this year I've been reading the teachings of the Buddha and on the subject of suffering, it's actually quite fascinating to compare and contrast because one of the objectives of Buddhism is to be free from suffering. There are four noble truths described in Buddhism, which are the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the end of suffering, and the truth of the path that leads to the end of suffering. So the idea is you get to this point where you're free from suffering. Sounds attractive. How do you do it? <coughs> the, the goal is to be free from attachments. Okay. And there's a lot of this which, which is, is actually quite helpful to think about. How much suffering in the world comes from the attachment to land, to property, to power, to uh, consumption of stuff. All these attachments bring about suffering. They spring jealousy, arguments, and a never, never ending sense of dissatisfaction with life. So there's a lot in this. To be free from those things is a very um, helpful thing. But here's a significant contrast. Our most significant attachments in our life are with people. There are relationships. To reduce attachments is actually to reduce love. To be free from suffering is to be free from love. And so here the Christian faith has a stark contrast with Buddhism. We're actually, increase, we're actually encouraged to increase our attachments to the right things, to other people to enlarge our hearts, as the psalmist says. Christ was the most attached person ever to live, not to wealth, not to status, not to power, but to people. Paul saw that, and he wanted it to experience that more and more. We read in chapter three, Verse 7, he says, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So here he is discarding worldly attachments. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for which sake, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. So there he's discarding the wealth, discarding the power, discarding the status, discarding those attachments. Look in verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul's joy was to give up his life, 
Paul's joy was to sacrifice himself. Paul's joy was to serve other people, whatever the consequences. He was not a man floating on a lilo, bobbed around by the waves and whatever was happening on the surface. He was a man who dived deeply into the ocean and swam in different currents. And that's where he found joy. Finally, he describes what this joy is in chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Thank you for listening to the Good Christadelphian Talks podcast. We hope this talk helped you in your walk. If you would like to hear more, please subscribe for new episodes and leave a review in Apple Podcast or whichever service you are using to help more people find the show when they search for it. If you enjoyed this particular talk, please share it with someone who you think might enjoy it as well. For show notes on the talk you just listened to, visit our show page at anchor.fm gct or check the show notes section of your podcast player. Please share your thoughts on the talk from this week on our Facebook or Instagram pages, where we are at Good Christadelphian Talks, on Twitter, where we are at GCT underscore podcast, or leave a comment on our YouTube channel where these talks are posted as well. If you know of a great talk, we want to know about it too. Send a suggestion to our email at goodchristadelphiantalks at gmail.com or message us on any of our social media accounts. Thank you for listening. God bless and talk to you next week.